it's often been said that America has no ideology as such, but the closest thing to it would be that the business of America is business. And so increasingly there is this focus on the tightening of the relationships in the realm of material well-being and economic growth in this region's linkage uh, to global prospects for security, stability, peace, and prosperity. And so all of our participants in this session have intense and extensive experience, lasting cumulative substantially more than a century on issues pertaining to trade, investment, technology, cooperation, financial markets, currencies, and the like. Michael Marklin is the chair of this session, and we're pleased to have him play this role. He was a superb briefer to a delegation of United States Naval Academy midshipmen uh, to the United Arab Emirates in the past year. Uh, he lives in the region, based in Dubai, as the senior member of Morgan Stanley's private wealth management. And I've been quite impressed with the use of these words to describe uh, individuals who are making out quite well in terms of their pocketbooks and their purses. Uh, another phrase we used to use were people of independent means. And a third one uh, that we would use that applies perhaps to none here would be of high net worth. Um, but he's involved with private wealth management. It means the same as those two other things there. Uh, he has his uh, bachelor's from Wabash College, a master's in business administration from Fontainebleau in, in France. Michael Marklin. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Uh, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to our first panel session on business investment, financial development dynamics uh, within the Middle East. I would like to thank you, Dr. Anthony, and uh, the board, as well as the rest of the council for giving me the uh, opportunity to participate in this important dialogue. Uh, I also must add that uh, any comments that I make here today are in my own personal capacity. Um, in that the comments and opinions that I say are not necessarily those uh, of Morgan Stanley. Um, my name is um, Michael Markland again, and, and it's been my pleasure to live in the Middle East for, in Dubai for over 10 years and to be active in the region uh, since 1993. And in capacities outside of private wealth management, I've been an advisor to families and governments uh, as a a confidant for quite some time, and it's been a pleasure and an honor uh, to be welcomed into the region. Morgan Stanley is clearly, uh, obviously, uh, very interested in business in the region. We are, have been active with clients there for over 30 years, and have had a base in Dubai, Riyadh, Doha, and Cairo since 2006. And as a leading investment banking and in, um, institutional brokerage and wealth management franchise, we're clearly bullish on the prospects of working within the Middle East and is in supporting its continued development and connecting our clients uh, to people, capital, and ideas within the region and around the world. The defining characteristic of this panel is that we are all professional bridge builders in perhaps one of the most direct and pragmatic ways, and that 
we also tend to be very optimistic, I think, as a whole about the prospects, uh, even though we're very realistic about the challenges that are faced within the region and the shifting environment in a number of different ways. So in no way do we seek to diminish the real and substantial challenges that are facing the region. And that's especially true for investors and business, businessmen who, in, by and large, look to mitigate risk at every turn. The Middle East, whether in Levant, in the Maghreb, or in the Gulf, is definitely not for the faint of heart or the thin-skinned. Yet what draws me and many of the people in this room and many of the business colleagues that I associate with that there is very few regions in the world where the possibilities are so wide, where the volatility of the situation is so deep in the spectrum, in the spectrum of possibility. The Arab world is clearly in a unique space in a unique time. So today I have the honor and privilege of sharing the stage with some of the top practitioners in business, finance, and commerce in the region men operating at the core of our topic, and I'm sure that you are all eager to hear their perspectives. It is my pleasure to introduce, as our first panelist, Ambassador Ford Fraker. Ambassador Fraker served as the ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia between 2007 and 2009, spanning both the Bush and Obama administrations. He has more than 30 years' experience in finance, investment, and banking within the Middle East. Ambassador Fraker currently serves as a senior advisor for KKR and the chairman for the Middle East and North Africa for KKR. He is also senior advisor to Trinity Group Limited and is a member of the Middle East Advisory Board for the Royal Bank of Scotland. Our second panelist is Ambassador Joseph LeBaron. Ambassador LeBaron served as the U.S. Ambassador to the State of Qatar between 2008 and 2011 and is the Ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Mauritania between 2003 and 2006. He's also served in a number of political advisory appointments with the U.S. military and the Special Operations Command at McDill Air Force Base in Florida. His early assignments in the diplomatic corps included the Deputy Chief of Mission in Bahrain, as well as the Council General in Dubai. Our third panelist is Danny Seabright, who is the President of the U.S. UAE Business Council. And he is a leading advocate for the commercial relationships and expanding business opportunities between the two countries. Since 2002, Mr. Seabright led, held the position of Vice President at the Cohen Group, Cohen Group excuse me, an international strategic consultancy led by former Secretary of Defense William Cohen. Previously, Mr. Seabright served in a number of capacities for the U.S. Department of Defense and the Defense Intelligence Agency, where he was awarded many numerous distinctions. Lionel Johnson is our final panelist, and thank you again, uh, Mr. Johnson, for joining our panelists uh, on short notice. Mr. Johnson is Vice President of the Middle East Affairs at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. His career spans more than 28 years, during which he has become a leader in international business, public policy, and economic development. As Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at Fleischmann Hilliard, Mr. Johnson advised Fortune 500 corporate clients, trade associations, and foreign governments. He has also held the position of Vice President and Director of International Government Affairs at Citigroup. Given the time constraints and the changes in the program today and the richness of the topic and experience, experience, extensive experience of the panel, we've asked the panel to limit their initial comments to five to eight minutes, and then we'll open it up to uh, Q&A. Gentlemen, again, thank you for your time. And Ambassador Fraker, if I could turn the floor to you so you can share with us 
that against the current policy backdrop and political environment, how do you define the business and investment opportunity in the Middle East? Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'd like to uh, thank John Duke Anthony and the Council for inviting me back once again. It's a great pleasure to be here. Congratulations again on your uh, anniversary. It's a, it's a great event. Um, you know, I'm delighted actually to be standing here, having listened to uh, all of the comments yesterday, to be standing here not wearing a diplomatic or a foreign policy hat. Um, the news in the Gulf area in particular uh, on the commercial side is good news. And uh, I think yesterday might have been the bad news bears and will be the good news bears uh, uh, today. When, uh, when I began as a banker in, in the region, I uh, had the uh, pleasure of experiencing, certainly in Saudi Arabia, the first boom in the late 70s and the, and the early 80s which we described then as the infrastructure boom. It's when uh, a lot of the roads, airports, and, and buildings in the, in the kingdom and throughout the Gulf got, got built. Um, you had uh, the uh, beginning of the real development, uh, certainly in, in Riyadh, with the move from Jeddah to Riyadh. Uh, certainly the embassy is a diplomatic uh, community and, and many of the businesses. And then when I returned as ambassador in, in 07, uh, I was able to participate uh, from that perspective in what we called the, the second big boom in Saudi Arabia. And one of the messages that I used to deliver on a regular basis to U.S. businesses was that if you were a, an international business with aspirations for growth internationally and you weren't looking at the market in the Gulf, then you were missing the opportunity of a decade, if not the next three decades and that in my uh, many years of experience in doing business in the region, it was always the case that if people actually got on airplanes and came out to the region, you would leave more positive than when you arrived. So half the battle was just getting people to come out and see what the opportunities were. And we think that that remains the case very much today. Uh, many of you have seen the announcements about the extensive development programs that uh, have been announced in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf and elsewhere. Uh, these are huge programs and huge opportunities for business people. So uh, over 30 years, the message has not changed, and it is to buy your airplane ticket and come out to the region and see the opportunities. Uh, just to offer up uh, two numbers. Uh, the first is uh, about a trillion and a half dollars worth of programs just in the kingdom alone. Uh, in 2008, we undertook an exercise within the embassy to, uh, to add up what all the programs uh, were that had been announced uh, for Saudi Arabia. And at that point, we reached uh, a trillion dollars. Uh, that's a trillion dollars worth of programs that uh, were to be undertaken over the next 10 years. Uh, this is a massive undertaking, and since the Arab Spring and the, and the more recent announcements of uh, development programs, not just in Saudi Arabia but Kuwait and the UAE, that number has, uh, has grown enormously. So that is the, the size of the opportunity in the region. So again, the message is the same. Come out. If, you're any, if there are any business people here, I'm not sure there are. I won't ask for, uh, I won't ask for hands, but uh, uh, I, I hope you're listening to that message. Uh, 
in terms of, of how KKR is uh, responding to this opportunity, uh, we've, be, uh, we've become the first global private equity firm to be licensed by the Capital Markets Authority in, uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, to undertake our business there. We're very, uh, we're very proud of that fact. Uh, and it shows the firm's commitment to what we believe is, is an enormous opportunity. And, and our approach is, is threefold. Number one, we have money to invest. So we're looking for good investment opportunities. We're looking to develop strong partnerships and relationships and provide development and growth capital to good companies in the region. That's number one. Number two, we have about 63 portfolio companies that the firm has already invested in. Some of them do business in the Middle East, but should do more. Others don't do any business, but would like to. And the rest of the group have never heard about the Middle East, so we have an education process to do with them. But concentrating on the first two groups, uh, we put programs together to bring these companies to the region, to introduce them to local groups who they can partner with, joint venture with, uh, uh, create uh, distribution arrangements with, etc. So we think that's a terrific opportunity. And then lastly, for the last 50 years, the region has been a net exporter of capital. Uh, we're a large uh, private equity group. We're a voracious user of capital. So we're always raising money in the region. So we find when we sit in front of uh, people, one of those three uh, themes uh, usually resonates. Uh, often it's, it's more than just one. So we're uh, very bullish on the region. I think many, most of my colleagues here uh, will echo those sentiments. Uh, and it's always nice to come to these meetings with some good news. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for your comments, uh, Ambassador Fraker. Uh, Ambassador LeBaron. Building on what Michael Markland said about his organization, the views that I am about to express are not the views of Patton Boggs. I have to warn you, they may not be my views in an hour or so. <laughs> Depends on what people say. You know, it reminds me of the story of what uh, this is a big new Brzezinski was asked by an interviewer if he wrote fiction, this was when he was National Security Advisor, and he said, it depends on how you view my academic work. Uh, so, you know, now that we set the bar, let me, uh, let me say when I last spoke to the National Council in, uh, in April, it was quite literally uh, the spring of the Arab awakening. I talked then about the different immediate responses to the Arab Spring that I had seen by the policy community of the executive branch of government, by the defense community, by the business community, and by NGOs and civil society. The language differed among these different communities, but the focus that was common, the focus that I detected was on risk. It was expressed in different ways safety of employees uh, by business firms, safety of assets, capital uh, repatriation. Uh, the military talked about force protection. U.S. government was concerned about the safety of its, its diplomats and so on. I want to extend in my eight minutes today uh, the comments that I made then about risk. 
And one indirect measure of risk in the business world is that of foreign direct investment, the rate of foreign direct investment. And the flow of foreign direct investment from the United States, from elsewhere in the world, into the Arab world after the Arab Spring is declining. The expectation is a decline of about 17% in this calendar year. Now, economists are divided about the role that FDI plays in economic growth, but the rate of economic growth is also declining as uh, the projected growth in that. In October 2010, the IMF had projected an expected growth rate for the region in 2011 of 5.1%. It's now 4% and 3.6% expected in 2012. So why is FDI and growth rates, why are these important? Why am I even mentioning them? And I, I am because if there's one thing that the Arab Spring has taught us, it is this, and that is that the MENA region and instability in the MENA region is as much about economics as it is about politics. One can argue, in fact, that in Tunis and in uh, Cairo and Egypt and Tunisia, the underlying issues were economic, high prices coupled with high unemployment, up to 30% in some cases. That suggests to me that political reform in and of itself is not a solution uh, to uh, the issues, the challenges before the MENA region. That what will solve these problems involves economic policy, economic growth, better governance if we're to solve these problems, meet the challenges, take advantage of the opportunities that are provided. And since this is a policymakers conference, let me focus on policy. What is to be done by policymakers, both here in the United States and in the MENA region? I have some suggestions. Uh, for the first group, take immediate, stronger action to help the private sector corporations deal with the political risk that has led to the decline in the foreign direct investment inflows. Now, how do you do that? Well, you step up uh, the activities of the Exim Bank, which assists U.S. companies, large and small, in, the fi in financing the export of U.S. goods and services to in the international market. And OPIC, which is focused on investors. Uh, the OPIC Private Investment Corporation it is the Development Finance Institution of the United States, and it provides these kinds of financial uh, guarantees, political risk insurance that we need more of in order to help offset the sense of increased risk in the region. There's also the World Bank and the Multilateral Investment Group Agency there, and that ensures against political risk as well, expropriation, war, terrorism, civil dis disturbances, these kinds of, of insurance premiums against political risk are increasingly important in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And I have a related suggestion for the policymakers in the MENA region, principally in the GCC states. And the risk is not great in most of the GCC states. Yet the risk of the political risk that the U.S. business community has about uh, the risk in the region is not differentiated, so that uh, what I have detected is that the risk associated with North Africa is the same degree of political risk associated with the GCC states or the Levant. There's very little differentiation made. 
So the GCC states should create a political risk insurance program that they could sell through private companies that would offset uh, this sense of, of risk in the region for companies that wish to engage. And I think the cost of the program would be low because the sense of risk is so high uh, by U.S. business that uh, you could have a fairly high premium uh, that would be pocketed because the payout on those claims would not be very great. Finally, U.S. Uh, and GCC policymakers together uh, should engage in new partnerships uh, to fund and administer assistance programs to countries such as Egypt and Tunisia. We need to get away from the old model in which uh, the U.S. government approached the GCC states as donors. It's long ago uh, been eclipsed by the reality and that they should become partners. And there is a huge difference between approaching these states as donors writing checks and approaching them as partners. There is a new program that the United States government started in cooperation with the business community in the United States. It's called the Partners for a New Beginning. It could be a start for this kind of collaboration of partners involving the GCC states and the United States, the private and the public sector joining together, building on President Obama's speech in Cairo in June of 2009, focused on creating economic opportunity, jobs, focusing on the forces that brought us in a very real way the Arab Spring in the sense to which they were at least economic. Qatar should be such a partner. Uh, they already have a, a very active program uh, through the Qatar Foundation focused on creating job opportunities for Arab youth. There are pilot projects underway in Morocco and in Yemen. And this, I would submit to you, is a very important focus collectively of policymakers both in the MENA region, principally the GCC states and the United States. I'll leave it at that point. I think the future is bright for the business community uh, willing to take the risk mitigated by the kinds of actions that I've proposed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador LeBaron. Uh, Danny Seabright, the president of the USA, uh, sorry, the US UAE Business Council. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, given, I know this is, as was stated, this is a policymakers forum, but given the list of companies that are up there on the, on the, uh, on the uh, banner, I think we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit to, to the business folks in the room and how government can help them if I can. It's an honor to be here today, and I'm grateful to the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and Dr. Anthony uh, in particular for extending the invitation to join the panel. Thank you. I have worked in the public sector and the private sector in the Middle East. In my years of experience, I've gained a fair understanding of the commercial dynamics in the region. I just returned this week from the World Economic Forum in Amman, and I hope to discuss with you a few pressing regional business-related issues that, that are also facing the region broadly, not just specifically to the UAE. First, let me reiterate that the population in the Middle East is a relatively young population. We've all heard the discussion about the demographic challenges that the region faces. They're real and uh, they're, they're, they're with us. The, according to the International Monetary Fund, around 60% of the region's population is under 30% today. I had uh, 
very close friend in, in Amman quote me that in Saudi Arabia today, 80% of the, of the women uh, uh, are under the age of 24 and don't have a job. This is a huge demographic time bomb across the region that we all face. This dynamic presents an opportunity for U.S. and U.S. firm, for U.S. and foreign firms to provide leadership in education, training, and occupational development for the region's future business leaders. Additionally, regional unemployment is the highest in the world in this region with the latest projection hovering, hovering around 25%. Firms looking to invest and grow in the region who are eager to hire and train local human capital will benefit from the support of governments there looking to decrease local unemployment and build sustainable workforces for the future in a number of business verticals. One such country in the region is actively reforming its business climate and presenting an attractive business case for foreign investment and partnership is, of course, the United Arab Emirates. In an effort to build a sustainable and diversified economy, the leadership of the country has developed the UAE Vision 2021 Economic Development Plan and the Abu Dhabi Economic Plan 2030. I raise these two plans because they're actually representative of things going on in other countries in the region just with different titles, and I want to talk about that just for a second. These plans in the UAE uh, outline uh, for the economic diversification of the Emirates uh, key sectors that are priorities in their development, and there are seven. Commercial aerospace and defense, energy including renewable, civilian nuclear, and oil and gas, infrastructure development and green build, tourism and culture, education, media, and healthcare. These are the seven pillars of development that the UAE is focused on, and I would argue that they're very similar, as I said, in Saudi, in Qatar, in Kuwait, in other, in other countries in the Gulf. Each of these sectors represents an opportunity for American commercial partnership and investment over the next few decades as commerce assumes a bigger role in the overall U.S.-UAE relationship and the relationships with other countries in the region. From my perspective at the Business Council, let me offer you a few common mistakes made by American companies looking to invest and to do business in the region today. A fundamental mistake that many American companies make is not taking the time to connect with their potential business partners and build relationships necessary to sustain long-term business. Some U.S. and European companies are tagged with only wanting the quick transaction in the region, believing they can arrive on Tuesday sign the deal on Wednesday and leave the same evening. These days are long gone, ladies and gentlemen. As most of you know, business is done differently in the region than it is in the States or in Europe or in Asia. Plain and simple, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, others in the re region regard personal trust and friendship as a key component of the commercial and financial process. Another common mistake made by American firms is to paint all Middle Eastern countries with the same brush and without taking the time to understand the cultural and political differences between the countries or even within the countries, uh, uh, the differences that may exist in different regions. Illustrating a respect and understanding of the local culture and regional dynamics can prove beneficial to American firms as they decide how to organize, organize their regional business model. I would like to conclude with another insight or two I gained at the WEF meetings this weekend regarding inter-Arab investment. Given the financial conditions in the world and the United States, the UAE and other Middle Eastern countries have narrowed their foreign investment focus more recently to primarily the Middle East and, the, and North Africa, the broader region from Morocco to Malaysia. 
As the countries in the region turn their focus increasingly inward, it is in the interest of the U.S. and other Western governments to reform foreign trade regulations and encourage the cultivation of foreign direct investment and partnership with these countries. Ambassador LeBaron offered some excellent suggestions, and I took note of all of them. Um, many of the countries will spend billions of dollars not only in their own countries in the years ahead, but also in the development of their neighbors. And this is a very, very important new development. U.S. companies should be well positioned to be partners in this development, not only as, as it were in the UAE or Saudi, but in North Africa with the U.S. or Saudi or Qatar. Uh, I want to make one last note about the strong support that, I, that we get and that I think others in the room get from uh, their U.S. Uh, missions in the region, from the, U from the U.S. ambassador uh, all the way down to the U.S. Foreign Commercial Service. This is really, really important uh, to U.S. companies and those of the, you that don't take advantage of what the embassies, um, both local, uh, in our, our embassies in the, in the local countries and the foreign embassies here in the U.S., if you don't take advantage of those services and make sure that those officials know what you're trying to pursue and get their advice and get their insights, you're missing a very, very valuable piece of your, your business process. Thank you very much. Thank you, Danny. Mr. Johnson? Thank you again uh, for inviting me to join you. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning and thank the National Council for including the U.S. Chamber uh, among your uh, program participants. And we're delighted to be a sponsor as well. I, um, as the last speaker on the panel, want to uh, not run the risk of repeating some of the points that some of my colleagues have made, uh, all excellent points about the importance of uh, the business community, the private sector, U.S. engagement in this very important and dynamic region. Um, I will say, and it's the obvious point, that U.S. businesses have been involved and engaged in the Middle East and North Africa for decades. Um, it is now, however, a region that is dramatically transforming, and the opportunities that are now uh, appearing are those that we never expected just, uh, just several months ago when I assumed this job. It's uh, been a dramatic period. U.S. companies now operating in, in regions of transition, countries in transition, uh, have an opportunity to support the process of reform. And with more transparent and accountable governance that will hopefully follow, uh, we can enable these countries, these new governments, and the societies to experience what I believe is important uh, in terms of long-term, more broad-based economic growth to en enable more members of these societies to benefit from, uh, from these uh, transitions and also to benefit from globalization more than they've ever had before. For the private sector, I think we have essentially three great challenges in operating in this new environment. The first um, is to think differently about this region. We need to retool our organizations and our companies to take full advantage of new and unprecedented opportunities for investment in the region, and while ensuring at the same time that our investments and our business activities actually support meaningful job creation and support the process of reform as well as those who are pushing for reform. We can pursue business opportunities in this region while not appearing to be opportunistic. We need to be partners for development with these new governments that are coming to office for the long term. And the winning companies will be the ones that can see the region uh, and the generation of young and educated people 
as partners in creating um, a new uh, environment for private sector-led growth and creating desperately needed 21st century jobs across the region. Second, I think that U.S. companies need to develop a regional perspective, and as Danny just said, uh, given the fragmented nature of the region, we have often dealt with these countries in, uh, in a, in a uh, bilateral sense. Um, I think we now need to uh, take stock of what we've learned from the Arab awakening and that there is probably less importance today of borders and boundaries. And given the revolution in telecommunications that actually helped to fuel some of these transitions, I think that uh, we need to recognize the importance of technology in, in connecting and bringing people together uh, in this dramatically new period. U.S. companies, therefore, have to look more holistically at the mechanics of international commerce, including things like supply chains, raw materials, manufacturing, and innovation, uh, and that um, these new uh, tools can bring down even further the barriers that have kept apart the societies of the region, and that what our, hopefully our, our policies and our business engagement can do would be to create more interaction, more intra-regional trade and investment and commercial activity that will be beneficial not only for the region but for our companies as we operate as multinational companies throughout the region. At the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, we too are retooling our organization and our programs uh, to deal with these new opportunities and to address many of the cross-cutting policy concerns and to actually be responsive to the degree that we can to what the governments themselves are telling us are their priorities. And here I say, you know, be partners for development. And in this regard, in December 12th and 13th, we are working with governments of Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya to begin to focus on the element of development that they've all told us is most important for them in the near-term job creation. And by looking at their tourism industries, we're going to put together a project uh, that will have an inaugural conference 12th and 13th of December, but a 12-month program working in partnership with each one of these governments to support the process of advancing their tourism uh, industries for the purpose of development. Third, the events of the past week in Libya have demonstrated that the transformations that are underway are not yet over and that, they may, that the transition may be in transition for some time. And while some companies have rushed in to the region uh, to pursue opportunities, others have been more cautious, assessing risk, assessing just what the possibilities might be. But with companies uh, that we have in, in our membership, and I'm sure that, uh, that our colleagues here are working with, that have a pioneering spirit, they will be those who will be partners with these new governments and these private sectors for development and economic growth. And with that pioneering spirit that American companies have always had, I think that there is a large possibility for success across the region, not just in individual markets. And that is our great challenge that we are pursuing programmatically at the Chamber uh, in partnership with the National Council and other organizations here. And I think that is ultimately going to uh, solidify the role of the private sector across the region as the engine of long-term, sustainable, and broad-based economic growth for the region's peoples. Thank you.
And now at the Q&A session, we have plenty of questions that have been forwarded, uh, but we're going to have the honor of uh, Dr. Joseph Moynihan, a genuine business person, in addition to being the chairman of the National Council's Board of Directors, ask those questions. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony. Thank you to the wonderful panel for their insights and for their comments, which helps us to further understand the, the more recent dynamics of, uh, of the business environment uh, in the Gulf and elsewhere. Uh, let me begin by inviting Michael to, uh, to ask a question or two of, of his panel members. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Joseph. Very quickly, um, I'd open this up to the uh, the panel. Um, we've talked a lot about risk. Um, how are you advising companies specifically on risk mitigation, uh, and particularly in this environment? Okay. Um, I think the, the point that was made earlier that uh, one size does not fit all in the Middle East. Every country is different, different cultures, different backgrounds, different histories. So it really depends on, on where you're focused. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the best advice you can begin with, uh, with your companies. And the other comment I'd make is, is developing the personal relationships. Uh, this part of the world is all about personal relationships. People want to know you as an individual. They want to know you and, and trust you. Uh, they believe that uh, the partnership approach to doing business is, is the only way it works. So spending the time and effort uh, is probably the best uh, possible way of mitigating, uh, mitigating the risks. I think I've already answered the question uh, so, from my yeah. perspective, but I really do think there is, are government programs that can be taken advantage of. Those programs should be expanded, new, and that's in the United States. Elsewhere, there are European equivalents. Uh, in the GCC states, I think they really should, uh, and we are in discussions with them now about creating this insurance instrument that would help offset uh, uh, the sense of risk. It's undifferentiated within the, the business community, in my experience. Uh, they need to take a, a more sophisticated look at the varying degrees of risk that exist across the region. But until they do, uh, these instruments are important. Thank you. <laughs> I think I'm in the, a, good, a great position to say a word or two about how the uh, United Arab Emirates is actually an island of stability and security uh, and what's going on in the region right now today. Obviously, there's fear of uh, co confrontation with Iran uh, and, and problems there in the region uh, in the future. But I think what we saw in the Arab awakening uh, when we saw uh, capital flee uh, other countries uh, in the region because of what was going on. We saw it fleeing to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and setting up shop there. You, Dubai Chamber of Commerce quoted me statistics in uh, April of an uptick of some 30 to 40 percent of new company registrations from the year before. Most of it was coming in from the region, uh, from companies uh, leaving Egypt or leaving other places and coming to the region to set up shop and do business. So uh, I think Capital is very, very uh, attentive to risk and assesses it very, very well. And uh, I like being able to talk about why the UAE is such a tolerant, progressive place to do business today. Thank you. Well, well thanks again. Let me uh, 
Let me initiate a, a dialogue about energy, and particularly uh, investment and development of new energy sources, for which uh, states in the Gulf are, uh, are a world leader. Uh, we note that in the Emirates, uh, there's not only the breaking ground of, uh, of uh, nuclear power activity, but there's also substantial new investment to, uh, to exploit the natural gas resources within the, within the country, and largely to use both natural gas and nuclear energy as ways of powering the home front, allowing the export of, of additional crude that would otherwise need to be refined and, uh, and employed there. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, we find uh, the largest investment in wind and solar and other energy projects in the world. And I'm wondering if the Saudis have found ways to transmit that energy and store that energy that, that others have not and what their investment vehicles for that might be. Um, even though the Emirates talks about the tyranny of distance with respect to the export of natural gas, we note that Qatar has solved that problem well and is now the global leader in LNG exports and, uh, and indeed is, is able to, to demonstrate the safe and effective delivery of LNG to markets throughout the world. So if I could, realizing this is not specifically an energy panel, but this has a lot to do with investment. This has a lot to do with the interests of the region. This has indeed a lot to do with the employment of their youth and, uh, and the attractiveness of foreign direct investment. So if I could ask the panelists to comment on that, please. Right, well, uh, why don't I begin again? Uh, <clears throat> just from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is the 800-pound gorilla in the region in terms of energy. Uh, a quarter of the, the world's proven oil reserves are sitting under the sands of, uh, of Saudi Arabia, 26 billion barrels. Uh, <clears throat> those facts are, are relatively well known. You mentioned that uh, there have been substantial investments in developing uh, solar energy, uh, and those, those efforts are, are very large, but in early days. So I think there's still a lot of questions to be answered about how they're going to build that out. Uh, the other comment I'd make is that one of the things we did when I was ambassador is uh, when President Bush came out on his second visit, uh, we signed three nuclear cooperation agreements with the, uh, the kingdom. And uh, as, a, uh, as a banker, it wasn't tough for me to make the argument from a commercial standpoint that burning $147 a barrel oil every day to produce desalinization water wasn't a very economic way of, uh, of going about it and that perhaps a nuclear uh, solution would, uh, would make a lot, of, uh, a lot more sense. So that's also uh, happening in the kingdom. Yeah. When I think of alternative energy sources uh, and I think of the irradiation levels that exist from the Gulf all the way to Mauritania and Northwest Africa, those irradiation levels are the highest in the world, and it suggests that solar, more than any other form of renewable energy, of alternative energy, is, is uh, that which uh, is a natural uh, for the MENA region. Uh, but it is in its early days, and the investment costs are high. But when you consider that Qatar, which I know best, uh, has the largest carbon footprint per capita in the world and the second largest ecological footprint per capita in the world, the need for, for different forms of energy to drive production and to uh, produce a quality of life is high. And Qatar is also linking alternative energy, specifically solar energy, to food security. 
using solar energy to power desalinization, which in turn would, use, uh, would be used in agriculture. Now, I don't think the technology is there to make that a cost-effective approach, but the, the technology is evolving, and Qatar is thinking of, is well ahead in, in developing this technology with not only food security for itself, but to export that technology elsewhere in the, in the MENA region, in fact, around the world in, the gro in a global dryland alliance. So the future is exciting, uh, but it is early. And uh, those are my views when I think of, of, of where the, the region should go. It really comes down to the, 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 the characteristics of nature in that part of the region, which suggests a focus on solar. Thank you. Let's make a quick comment. I think, and the trend has been identified uh, by someone previously, but I think it's really important to note that this region, uh, which is sitting on all this uh, uh, crude and, and, uh, and natural gas, has collectively come to the understanding that for the future, they need to be leaders in renewable energy uh, and they need to invest in nuclear and other fuels of, uh, or other ways of generating electricity. Um, I think uh, the fact that the UAE has, has uh, become the home of IRENA, the International Renewable Energy, Renewable Energy Agency, the first UN agency to be headquartered in the region, uh, is, is key. Um, Mazdar, a uh, critical uh, leader in renewable energy, building Mazdar City. Uh, uh, the ambassador mentioned that Saudi is a leader in, in uh, solar and wind. I believe it may be in its own country, but Mazdar and the UAE are investing in solar and wind in China, in the U.S., in Germany, in Spain, uh, in best-class technologies to push them forward and take them to the next level. So there's a huge, huge investment in this space, not only by the UAE, but all the countries uh, in the region that have the money to invest. And I think it's very visionary on their part to understand that this is where they have to go to be ahead of the curve for, for, uh, in, as the world looks at these problems. I'll just add uh, <clears throat> just briefly that the um, issue of renewable energy has, has been at the fore of, of our discussions with a number of the countries um, that have experienced the transitions, particularly having hosted, I think, seven delegations from Tunisia this year since February. Uh, at the top of their agenda has been the issue of renewable energy. So I think that um, it's encouraging to see that, uh, that the leaders of that transition, including the Prime Minister who was here just a couple weeks ago, is really inviting the U.S. private sector to play a major role in that investment. And I would say that the same would be true as of Morocco. Uh, if I may turn to defense industries for a moment, uh, uh, it's pretty well established by, uh, by Saudi speakers and others that uh, uh, the Saudis intend uh, uh, a 60 to $80 billion investment primarily in U.S. defense articles over the next uh, five to eight years. This is uh, an enormous sum. Uh, the, uh, the, the Emirates has been uh, traditionally one of the best uh, customers of the U.S. defense industry, both through government channels, through FMS programs, and indeed through direct commercial channels as well. Uh, Qatar not so much in this area because uh, uh, Qatar has a different strategy uh, provided for them by the RAND Corporation, which we can talk about another time. Uh, but in the case of Saudi and in the case of the Emirates, to be sure, uh, and indeed the case of many other countries, the offset programs associated with those defense expenditures will be controversial, and I would guess even more controversial given employment issues in the United States and employment issues in the region. 
Um, the United States Congress has periodically objected to offset agreements in the region, suggesting that this is, in fact, uh, the net export of American jobs to, uh, to ensure that technology transfer occurs and certain components of the relative defense articles are indeed produced within the region. Uh, yet, because of unemployment concerns and, uh, and indeed nationalization programs of industries in the region, we anticipate in the defense industries that uh, there will not be waivers from, from the offset commitments traditionally associated with them. And I wonder about the tension. Will this, in fact, drive the region for their defense modernization to other regions of the world less sensitive to homegrown employment issues? I wonder if our panelists could comment on that. Well, why don't I start, start in Saudi Arabia? <clears throat> you know, I, I guess I would, I would make the point to any senator or congressman who might be sitting here that when Boeing wins a, a 50 or $60 billion contract, this, is, this has to be good for jobs in the United States. Um, and I think that's true throughout, uh, throughout the industry. So this notion that we're uh, exporting jobs uh, I, is not one that, uh, that I subscribe to. Um, the other point I'd make in, in terms of the, the concerns that we have about how difficult, lengthy, and complicated our, our foreign military sales process is, uh, all, of that is all of that is true. And the trade-off for our partners is uh, the quality of U.S. equipment, but perhaps more important, the fact that, and this was made, uh, this point was made yesterday, that you're really entering into a long-term relationship with the United States on these programs because it's not just the, the hardware that's being sold. It's all the follow-on uh, services. It's the maintenance. Uh, it's the parts. And this, uh, you know, this ties uh, our countries together uh, very closely for a long, for a long time. And, and I think we still have a, have a pretty good uh, argument to make on, on that front. I've spent a lot of time on the offsets issue uh, throughout my career, uh, not only in the Middle East, but also in India and other places. And uh, I guess what I would comment about what's happening in the, in the Gulf today on offsets, not in Egypt, uh, but in the Gulf, is uh, realization that the offsets program is a way to bring uh, foreign companies uh, into uh, the process on the ground for a long time, not not again, a quick sale of a Thad or a Patriot or an F-16, and then and then you go home, and that's the the last time you see the contractor. They want uh, in the UAE, for example, one key goal of the offsets program is to have to set up industries uh, that 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 tap into new markets in the region and around the world that give the the U.S. partner who's part of that new JV or that new venture. Uh, access to new market and access to even more sales of their equipment in the future, whether it's a, a pistol or a widget or some or some composite part for a for an airplane. Uh, the offsets policies in the region are increasingly more sophisticated and more nuanced on what they're trying to achieve, and it's about building bigger and better business for the future. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I could just add one one comment, uh, something that that. I've observed over the years, and that is that, you know, at the end of the day, often uh, many of our customers conclude that uh, it's the United States companies that have the technical capability and the depth of, of management and people to actually come on the ground and, and get, the, 
get the jobs done long term. And time and time again, I think that that has proven itself compared to some of the uh, some of the offerings that uh, that other countries uh, make. Uh, I'm aware that in the boardrooms of defense companies and no doubt other companies, uh, the departure of military presence from Iraq uh, in the next 60 days, uh, essentially with no military presence, uh, at least no appreciable military presence thereafter, creates concern and a sense of risk associated with contractual relationships. Transparency in the, in the transactions associated with contractual relationships for large systems has always been a factor in the Arab world. Uh, I'll, I'll suggest that many in American business feel that, uh, that the secretiveness which, which some Arab countries prefer to pursue uh, commercial and defense relationships uh, is inimical to our, our long-term interests, uh, my own company, has declined to pursue business opportunities in parts of the Arab world specifically because of that concern. Um, that brings up the whole issue of, uh, of contract law, uh, reliable uh, settlement of disputes, uh, the issues of, uh, of where, in fact, disputes are settled and how they're settled and how those legal processes uh, uh, stand in line with, uh, with competing legal processes in other countries. Certainly, that's not a new issue. It's been ongoing in the Arab world for decades. Uh, have we indeed produced the necessary progress where we could call the transactions in the Arab world transparent and fully in accord with, the, uh, with international norms? Um, my, my comment to that is we're getting there. Um, a lot of progress has been made. Uh, it's still uh, a case-by-case basis, depending on what country you're, you're dealing with. Uh, some countries are further ahead in terms of, of putting the, uh, the legal and the uh, regulatory uh, uh, markers in place that are, that are necessary for this greater, greater transparency. But we're living in a world that is becoming increasingly transparent. We're living in a world where information is more readily available. So uh, we're moving in the right track. You know, it's a complex operating commercial environment, and and, and we have to take it on a a country-by-country basis. Some places it's easier to do business. It's more of it's online. The contractual process is is more obvious apparent. And, And so I think all of us on the panel will say we're getting there, more needs to be done. It's certainly better than it was when, when I first came to the region. Uh, but uh, uh, I think that the takeaway is that uh, if you approach uh, the region, enter the market with advice, uh, do feasibility studies, uh, actually take advantage of the resources available to you through the U.S. government, foreign commercial service offices, uh, you can uh, get quite a bit of transparency into the process through that way. The only comment I would get, was, was going to make is there are a lot of metrics out there for how the region is improving, how, how specific countries in the region are improving. And I, I note the World Bank report on ease of doing business and some of these other uh, reports. A number of countries in the region every single year continue to notch up and, get, and improve on the list. So it's very important. Uh, it's a trend, and it's, it's a process, and it's, gonna, it's continuing. 
I would agree with uh, the analysis that we're moving in the right direction on these issues. And since the questioner raised Iraq, let me just say that the, uh, the government of Iraq recognizes the importance of uh, an enabling environment for private sector development uh, that is more transparent, that is better administered and better regulated. Um, it is a very complicated governing and decision-making process there, as you all know, but I think that the, the current government uh, is, is making strides and, and they recognize the importance of U.S. Uh, investment in business um, in that country and, and they're working very closely with us um, across the board to try to, to move some of these decisions to uh, conclusion sooner than later as our relationship with that country transforms at the end of this year um, to one of more traditional diplomatic, commercial, economic relationships. So I think we, we are moving in the right direction. Uh, please join me in, uh, in an expression of appreciation to this outstanding panel and their identification of uh, the Gulf of the